Welcome to the Urban Futures podcast brought to you by the Centre for Urban Research and Austerity at De Montfort University. This podcast series is designed to promote cutting-edge research and action on the issue of the future of urban development in the UK and beyond. It is made up of interviews with leading critical academics and practitioners working to deliver an alternative, more progressive future for cities. In this edition of the Urban Futures podcast, we talk to Karel Williams. Karel is Professor of Accounting and Political Economy at the University of Manchester, and we will talk to him about the work he and his colleagues have developed on the grounded city. They argue that the dominance of theories of urban agglomeration in urban policymaking reflects a belated recognition of the urban by neoliberal economists as an important space. However, Carell and his colleagues argue that there are fundamental deficiencies in the agglomeration approach which rise from the imperialism and hubris of classical economics and social science. The grounded city offers an alternative policy imaginary which is interdisciplinary in nature, but draws principally on the urban historiography of Fernand Braudel and other scholars such as Charles Tilly, literatures which agglomeration theories simply fail to recognise. Thanks very much, Carell, for agreeing to be interviewed by us. Could you just begin by outlining the main contours of the argument and its implications for policy? Well, I think that on the whole... It's a critique and it's an alternative. It's a critique of the new urban economics, that cities are about density and agglomeration, they're dense, their dynamic is inside the city walls, and what we should do is add skills and infrastructure to extend the market. That's what we're knocking, and we're presenting an alternative view, which comes really not from economics, but from history, that cities depend on long-distance relations, they consolidate revenue from a distance, and that internally we have the city as an infrastructure heavy space. And the implication of our argument is that success and failure is often determined by uncontrollable long-distance political things, and what policy should concentrate on is the infrastructure which delivers the everyday goods that are important to the citizens. So there's a very clear distinction between the economics-based theory of agglomeration and our own much more historical account of cities dependent on distant relations and what really matters being the internal uh, infrastructure and the foundational goods they produce. So let's begin then by uh, focusing on your critique of, of the new urban economics. Could you just explain uh, where the new urban economics originates from and what its main uh, assumptions and tenets are? Really, the new urban economics is really about the imperialism of economics, about applying economics 101 to everything, including the city. From this point view. The city's principle is density. People together generates innovation. The city is a space that extends the market and city policies like adding skills or infrastructure are about um, making that market work better. Can you explain the notion of agglomeration that underpins this, this theory? Putting things together. Density. 
and Amhara's alchemy in that process, which makes um, large cities, large settlements, more productive than small settlements. So from that point of view, let's take something specific, um, the success of a city like London or the apparent failure of a city like Liverpool. London for the new urban economic Economics is related to its size. Liverpool is essentially failure to connect with other northern cities. And that, hence, of course, the whole idea of the northern powerhouse of connecting up the different northern cities that you've turned them not into individual cities, but one big agglomeration. So the idea of, of proximity, of, of networks, uh, of and also of the right policies that, that instigate uh, those gains... Uh, it is crucial. And uh, am I right to think that your criticism is that this places the onus for failure or, on, uh, or success on cities that have either rith- ridden waves that are, are not entirely beyond their control or have been victims of, of, of circumstances that are not entirely in their control? Yes, I mean, I think there's a kind of responsabilization element in all of this. When the city fails, it's because it doesn't get its act together internally. The dynamic is inside the city. And of course, the logic of this is, and I think this is very clear, um, that failing places shouldn't be helped. That's another aspect of this whole kind of um, belief system, if you like, behind agglomeration theory and the new urban economics is the idea of the competitive city. Really, only firms compete when they use similar processes to produce substitutable end products, and cities or nations do not do that. Um, and I think it's not only a false analogy, um, but somehow or other it suggests internal adjustment, sharpening up, making yourself more competitive is the thing that will bring success. Whereas I think that's very unlikely to do so if everybody is doing the same thing, like infrastructure and skills to improve their competitivity. And because fundamentally, it doesn't understand that cities have different sectoral bases and fit into patterns of specialization and complementarity. If you take, for example, Manchester, that's very good because Manchester has a financial sector, but the GVA, the output per capita of Manchester finance, is half that of London. And that's because, of course, there's a division of labour. The front office is in London, and that's high value added, and the back office is in Manchester, which is low value added. There's no sense in which London could become Manchester because they are part of a kind of division of labour. And in the paper, you also outline an interesting distinction between what you call prosaic new urban economics and also a herbivore version of, of new urban economics. Can you explain yes. the difference? Well, I mean, I suppose it can herbivore or maybe even carnivore and herbivore. Take version from Glazer is auto-liberal. The state's role is to sort the schools and the police force and get out of the way. Um, The herbivore version from Florida is that city policy is about constructing nesting boxes for hipsters. We need Wi-Fi, bike lanes and a gay scene. And that's the way your city can succeed. Uh, history is an important aspect of your work and your conception of cities. And uh, one of your criticisms of new urbanism is that it doesn't engage 
uh, with historical uh, knowledge of cities. I think you say that uh, Glazer and Florida have not digested the classic, uh, such as Braudel, that you that you draw on uh, a lot. Uh, so uh, what would you say are the dangers of ignoring historical knowledge? And what is there to be gained from grounding city policy in, in historical knowledge? Well, one of the interesting things about the new urban economics, like much the rest of the imperialism of economics, is when it takes over, it absolutely wipes everything, the memory of everything else out. And in fact, one of the things that we're trying to emphasize is that there's been a hundred years of writing about cities in history, which you can look at authors like Brodel and Tilly. And Tilly, after all, was writing up on cities up to the mid-1990s, Brodel in the early 1980s. We're not talking about antique and completely dead 19th century thinkers. I mean, if you look at that literature, not the dynamic inside the city walls, but the city's relation to its hinterland and the political and economic relations that tie cities to long-distance relations. I mean, at the simplest, if you think about uh, about cities, um, go back um, to archaeology, a city, as in the Middle East, uh, in ancient times, is a place which cannot essentially grow its own foodstuffs. It has to import food, which has to be paid for one way or another. How do you do that? You have political empires. You have trade, you have all the rest of it. The city's relation to its hinterland depends on politics and economics. I mean, a city can be a capital or a second city in an empire or a centralized national economy. And it can also have an economic role whereby it pays for its imports of food, services and goods by exporting whatever. It begins to explain the problems of industrial cities like Detroit and Liverpool. Their ability to earn at a distance is cut off by political and economic change, and above all, by political decisions on where, where and how to allow free trade. And if, for example, there had been tariffs against imports of Japanese cars into the United States, then Detroit would have carried on making cars for the domestic market. It was the loss of output to import competition from what was before 1985 a low-wage competitor which caused the problems in Detroit. Tilly differentiates between political yes. status and economic role. Uh, could you explain why in your framework political status is primary? Yes, the political status I think matters simply because um, the economic is fundamentally about the space of free trade, the rules about regulated trade. And that space depends on politics. Take the example of 19th century India. Handloom weavers in the villages were put out of work by factory-made Lancashire cotton textiles, which were cheaper. This happened because India was part of the British Empire and the British 
imperial power opened up India on free trade terms. So my view is that market access is usually politically regulated. And indeed, with Britain, this point is underscored. What happens when we leave the single market, when we leave the customs union, depends entirely on the political deal that we do with European countries, not on some kind of chimera of competitiveness. From this point of view, you criticise uh, scholars like uh, Benjamin Barber, who have been working a lot around the issue of cities and city leadership, uh, specifically on, on the role city mayors could have uh, on, on a national and global scene, uh, for naively attributing too much agency um, to city policymakers. The objection to Barber is that really um, uh, the mayor is presented as a miracle working chief executive and uh, the mayor works in a situation not of the mayor's choosing. It's easy to be a successful mayor in a growing city. I think if you look at the kinds of um, struggling industrial cities like Detroit or Liverpool, then it's much more difficult to suppose that a mayor could make any real difference when it's to do with long distance relations and forms of competition and market access which are not influenced by the mayor, not determined indeed in local or regional policies. So I think that then gives us a different idea that the mayor or the local authority should concentrate on what's controllable, where local government and regional government does have agency. And our line there would be, I think, that the role is in managing the foundational economy, the everyday goods and services that all households consume, and which are especially important in a city, because a city isn't infrastructure heavy space if you think about living in a small village um you can manage with a dirt road and um an earth privy at the bottom of the garden if you think about a city um, well cities only stop killing large numbers of people when you get clean water and pipe water and sewerage in the 19th century we now have all these connections with our electric railways, our broadband, which are the infrastructure of everyday life. And you can extend that to think not only of the physical materiality of the city, like the pipes and the cables, but also to the um, social assistance and care systems, adult care, unemployment insurance, etc., etc. It's those foundational things that the mayor, that the local authority should be trying to control because they, many of them are controllable and they're a kind of internal stabiliser within the city. You mentioned the, the idea that the foundational can, can act as an internal stabiliser and in the paper you also talk about accelerators uh, of land and property. Could, could you explain uh, yeah. how land and property act as uh, city accelerators? Yes. Well, I think if you look at the skyline in Manchester or in London now, you can see that property is pro-cyclical, that property goes in cycles of boom 
and bust. It tends to move with the economy and with an, in an exaggerated way. And this is particularly important in an economy like the UK economy and in UK cities, because we have increasingly come to treat housing as an asset, which means land and property prices are very important to the mass of the population. At the simplest level, if you look at the Thatcher and the Blair premierships, the uh, housing equity withdrawal is larger than nominal GDP growth under both premiers. So uh, property is a very important pro-cyclical force. And much of the rest of the economy is one way or another cyclical. The car market is cyclical. And then when, when uh, the market for durables, the market for houses, and all the rest of it is cyclical, so is much of the service economy. And I think then you can think of the foundational as the bedrock of demand. If you think of groceries or, um, or um, the demand for um, water, uh, gas, this stuff is foundational. Um, and like the more social things like adult care, as long as you have the population, you have a steady demand. And because of this steady demand, uh, this is an economic sector that exists in both growing and successful cities and also declining or unsuccessful cities. It is therefore something that we can focus on generically to improve uh, living conditions and also uh, increase social equality, which is another uh, one of your, of your agendas. Yes, absolutely. The idea is that if the foundational you have always... Um, uh, and in declining cities, it's what's left. And in successful cities, it's usually what is being squeezed in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's very interesting. I've been talking loosely about London as a successful city. And of course, by the standards of Glazer or Florida, it is a successful city because it has high output per capita, high GVA per capita, and all the rest of it. But if we look at things like access to housing or the adult care system, I think you can see that um, being economically successful by the metrics of the new urban economics doesn't solve any of your problems about foundational supply. I mean, at the centre of our ideas is the idea of the grounded city, because grounded because it pays attention to what's controllable and what matters to the citizens. It improves uh, the civic offer, and it takes us away from this kind of um, idea of income maintenance and redistribution towards the idea of reorganisation of the economy to improve the supply of foundational goods. So this is or part of what you refer to in framing the grounded city as, a, as pursuing fairness in a different way to the so, to social democratic redistribution. Absolutely. I mean, I think the interesting thing about fairness is everybody's for it. I mean, who's in favour of the unfair city? Um, but the question about fairness is how you go about producing it. And I think there are broadly... Um, three approaches, one of which is the one which I think has been 
dominant in the US and the UK since 1979 and Thatcher and Reagan, which is you basically go for economic growth and hope it will trickle down. And I think the problem there is, as we can see from recent electoral results, the electorate thinks it hasn't trickled down in the way that it should. So that's the right-wing solution. The, um, the centre-left solution is redistribution, that somehow or other you should redistribute income, which I think was demonstrated um, when Gordon Brown was Chancellor with the various kinds of um, housing credits, family income supplement, etc., etc., to take people out of poverty. I think the problem with that is that partly um, it's very difficult to get politically people to vote for higher taxes. Um, their political will for redistribution is fairly limited. And also, by the end of the new Labour period, you had more than 35% of UK households paying, um, receiving more in benefits than they paid in taxes. Clearly, you can't basically operate a, a deregulated Labour market with low levels of wages and top up everybody's income without it becoming unsustainable. So I think the redistribution solution is really um, not on politically, just as the trickle down doesn't work economically. So the suggestion is simply that you reorganize production of goods and services so that, for example, you make um, basic housing available to everybody, regardless of income. This was the principle which explained why, um, at the beginning of the Thatcher period, nearly 30% of the housing stock in the UK was social housing. This was an alternative to um, trickle down, an alternative to redistribution. And it's that kind of reorganize the production of foundational goods and services. It's that reorganization aspect that we've lost sight of. We've started to talk a little bit here about the kinds of policies that, that could lead to uh, to a grounded city. Uh, you've mentioned social housing, uh, focus on, on improving standards in, in the foundational sectors of the economy. You also uh, mentioned in the paper, land value capture uh, mechanisms. Could you talk to me a little yes. bit about the tax changes and any other policy changes that, that you would view as part of a move towards a grounded city? Yes. Um, well, I think there's two sides. What do, you, uh, what do you want to make available to the citizens by way of foundational goods? And secondly, how are you going to pay for it? And I think you've got to think of those two issues side by side. And I think if we talk about foundational development, then I think that means affordable, secure housing for all. Um, it means household utility connections and transport available at low cost. And I think it means health, education and care. And many of those things, like adult care or affordable, 
secure housing we are not actually providing in Britain or in many other societies. So there's the demand side of the foundational economy and then there's the supply side. How do we want to pay for it? One of the problems is that um, we've both been making taxes voluntary as with corporate corporate profits tax and we've been shifting taxes from high and unattractive rates of income tax onto consumption taxes in the UK and so we have a limited tax base and a regressive tax base and against this background I think we've got to think again about what sources of value we should be trying to capture. And property and land is what can't be shifted to evade tax and what, in principle, is the increase in value is the result of social development. Mm-hmm. When my house goes up in price, that's an unearned increment, not the results of my own cleverness. Mm-hmm. And from all those points of view, I think on the supply side, when we think of the revenue for the fi- foundational economy, we've got to think again about land value tax and property taxation, which, of course, would also require to be thought of in a kind of redistributive space, because clearly the capacity of London to raise revenue from land value tax is hugely larger than the capacity of Huddersfield or Liverpool. So there would still be uh, some sort of equalisation measures being brought into to a national system? Uh, I think that you have to have some basic kind of solidarism in any political settlement. And indeed, one of the problems that I see in the UK is that bit by bit, we're eroding this kind of idea that um, we have the same standards, for example, of health in Scunthorpe or Hartlepool or Liverpool as we have in London. Maybe not in terms of life expectancy, mortality and morbidity, but certainly that you should in principle get the same treatment. What I do worry about is that we're moving towards an Italian kind of situation where if you look at almost all the foundational services, they will be much worse funded in the Mezzogiorno than they are in the affluent. Uh, north of Italy. And as you point out in the paper, the um, new urban economics provides a convenient rationalisation for these processes and one that ideally you you should reverse through different measures. Yeah, there's really huge opportunity here to rethink the city, to reassert what were the social democratic priorities right across Europe in the 1920s, 30s, the 50s and the 60s. And actually, that would now be resisted because there's clearly a kind of growth coalition of those who benefit from the alignment of city politics and business around property. And we've argued the case that in Manchester, there is a problem about the closeness of relation between the city authorities and the property developers. But if you leave the property developers and the local political establishment out of it, really, there is a general social interest in places 
like Manchester or London or Liverpool in focusing on the foundational supply of goods and services and building a grounded city. And that moves me on to the sort of politics of, of the shift towards a grounded city. Uh, and as you refer to sort of the, the set of coherent interests, this growth coalition, um, and you've also mentioned about changes in the tax system, especially around property and land. And you can see how the, the, the current political economy has generated a set of winners that have a lot of power and would have a lot to lose from this sort of shift. So what, what, what do you see as the role of politics in moving towards uh, a grounded city? And you yes, the kind of maximalist demands for the improved supply of foundational goods and services. Um, that isn't going to happen anytime soon. Clearly, because if you look at the history of social democracy, it requires a mass party, strong trade unions and all the rest of these things we no longer have. I think there are a series of vulnerabilities in the existing system. Um, there is a problem, I think, for the vested interests around property in the city and financialization more generally. Because the mistake, in a way, is that they've granted one, one man one vote or one person one vote to the electorate. And I think it's the point Michael Moore made about why Trump was going to win in America, which is that the development of the American economy had taken everything away from um, Rust Belt America, but it had left them with the vote and they were going to use that. And the question, I suppose, then becomes whether the dissolution of the electorate with a political establishment result in a febrile populism or whether it can in some way or other be channeled into more progressive roots. This podcast was brought to you by the Centre for Urban Research on Austerity at De Montfort University. Our centre is dedicated to researching urbanism, austerity and related concepts and practices such as crisis, resistance, resilience, renaissance and transformation. It brings together activists, students and academics working on these issues to develop new networks and projects. The podcast was developed by our team members Adrian Boer, Ed Thompson, Abir Al-Sayari. For more information, podcasts and articles, please visit www.cura.or.dmu.ac.uk. For any questions or feedback, please contact Adrian Bua at adrian.bua at dmu.ac.uk.